Welcome to Data Remediations, a podcast connecting environmental data with people and places through stories and art. Okay, ready? Yeah. Are we recording? Yes. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Welcome, Welcome to episode four of Data Remediations. I'm Bethany Wiggin, the Faculty Director of the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities. I'm Grace Burrows. And I'm Katie Collier. We're the Student Public Research Interns for Data Refuge. And I'm Patricia Kim. I just submitted my dissertation. Uh, so I guess I'm Dr. Kim. Um, <laughs> Dr. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, of art history, just finishing up here also at the University of Pennsylvania. We are so excited about this fourth episode in which we talk about the liveliness of data, its life cycle from birth through its death or afterlives. In terms of life cycle, I see it as it's got different parts and there's some really good diagrams on the net you can see, but basically information gets created and preserved and indexed or uh, order created out of it, then it gets used And when it gets used, new information is created. And when that new information is created, it goes back into the life cycle, feeding itself. That was Jim A. Jacobs, one of the co-founders of the Free Government Information Project, which we'll hear more about in this episode. As Patricia mentioned earlier, we're focused this time on data's life cycles, with a special focus on issues related to data collection, preservation, and access. We'll also explore questions about who does the data archiving, and for whom data is collected. Since late 2016, the Data Refuge team has been thinking through these questions regarding federal climate and environmental data and digital assets as well. As we mentioned in episode one, Data Refuge first started as a collaborative, urgent archiving project that included thousands of volunteers and civic partners in over 50 cities and towns across the United States. One of the volunteers here in Philadelphia was a librarian. Actually, many of the volunteers were librarians across the country. But I'm thinking of one librarian who referred very memorably to metadata, that is, data about data, as love letters to the future. And now Data Refuge is creating another living archive full of love letters to the future. And here, partners are documenting data in its various stages of the life cycle. It includes stories about data they wish they had, including future data. In our climate changing world, we're super interested in how local communities are mobilizing to advocate, and in some cases create the data they need to respond to local climate challenges. As our story bank continues to grow, we keep asking ourselves about the story's usability and the data's usability and accessibility of the data and the stories in both the present and the future. In future episodes, we'll hear from our data storytelling partners in Houston, Los Angeles, Oregon, Baltimore, and beyond. But first, in this episode, we'll learn more about archives and big data in conversation with Jim A. Jacobs and James R. Jacobs, both librarians and co-founders of freegovinfo.org. Wait a minute. Jim Jacobs mm-hmm. and James Jacobs? They're two... Wait, are they the same? 
Uh, no, they s- just happen to have the exact same name and same profession. It took me so long to figure that out, but they are really two really great guys with very similar names and uh, big thoughts. Yeah, let's let's hear from them and how they met. I'm James R. Jacobs, James the Younger, I guess, of Free Government Information, and I'm a U.S. government information librarian at Stanford University. Welcome. And I'm Jim Jacobs. I'm a data services librarian emeritus at University of California, San Diego. The first time I met Jim was actually getting his paycheck, which was really <laughs> nice. Um, I, I had just started at, at UC San Diego as their state and local and international government information librarian. The first paycheck they gave me his pay stub, and I opened it up and I said, wow. I'm getting paid a lot of money. This is great. And I get a parking pass, too. We'll hear more from Jim Jacobs and James Jacobs, whom we'll refer to affectionately as the Jacobs brothers, even though they aren't really brothers. We also met with Jefferson Bailey, Director of Web Archiving and Data Services at the Internet Archive, and Abby Grotke, the Web Archiving Team Lead at the Library of Congress. Let's get started with the show. This first segment will introduce the nuts and bolts of government data. Today, government data remains in printed form, but a lot of it is born digital. There's a lot of diverse data. These can include traditional documents, PDFs or um, books. They might include graphs, spreadsheets. And then there's all kinds of new media, including videos, social media, blogs, and, and more. Before the digital turn, libraries, and especially librarians, played crucial roles in the preservation and stewardship of printed federal, state, and local government data. Abby Grocki tells us about the largest library in the world, the Library of Congress, and describes in more detail the important roles that libraries have played in preserving information. We have stewardship responsibilities to preserve and maintain things long term for the nation. The Library of Congress is the U.S., essentially the U.S. National Library. It is the library of our Congress, but it also is the largest library in the world and collects a lot of different things. So we collect books, we uh, have magazines, we have newspapers, we have photographs, we have maps, we have objects, we have all sorts of things. Historically, libraries, including ones that are a lot smaller than the Library of Congress, have played a vital role in facilitating access to government information. Both Abby and the Jacobs brothers tell us more. The government information community within libraries has a very long history, going back 200 years, but it's very traditional. It's a bunch of bound documents like the Congressional Record and the Federal Register and hearings of Congress. Libraries have uh, selected and organized and preserved and provided service for those books for literally centuries and done a very good job of it. But we were seeing that there was a very rapid change going on to make all of that information digital. And it was changing actually the nature of the information that was available. One of the things that we have in more recent times been preserving is digital content and web archives is one part of that. We've been archiving web sites and web content since about the year 2000. 
Well, we're preserving web content and other digital data because much of our materials that are produced by our citizens and our organizations are being increasingly produced online and digitally. So it's not something we can ignore. More and more people are using and producing born digital data and digital assets. And as we learned from the Jacobs brothers, uh, this born digital data has actually enriched the quality of data as well as its life cycle. In terms of life cycle, I see it as it's got different parts and there's some really good diagrams on the net you can see. But basically, information gets created and preserved and indexed or uh, order created out of it. Then it gets used And when it gets used, new information is created. And when that new information is created, it goes back into the life cycle, feeding itself so that the original information becomes richer because it has been used. And that's always been the case, even with print media. But with digital information, it's literally true that a database can become enhanced by its use by incorporating new information that's been created by researchers using that information. And so the life cycle actually improves the information, improves its accuracy, its usability, its utility, and its content. So born digital data have contributed to and even improved the quality of data's collection and analysis. Yet in the early 2000s, the Jacobs brothers brought public attention to some of the challenges associated with born digital government information. When government information began to go digital uh, back in the mid-90s with uh, a database called GPO Access, Uh, this was the the first um, database of government information that the government publishing office, then the government printing office, uh, created to to get access, uh, digital access, internet access to government information. When they first brought that database online, they actually had the idea that they would charge for access. You may be wondering what a GPO is. Our student intern Katie Collier is here to help us out. Today, the mission of the United States Government Publishing Office, or the GPO for short, is, quote, to keep America informed as the official, digital, and secure source for producing, preserving, and distributing official federal government publications and information for Congress, federal agencies, and the American public. Because the the library community saw the inequity of that and complained uh, rigorously about that, uh, GPO finally decided to just make GPO access free and publicly accessible. So there there is a precedence for the government charging for access to information. We feel that that's not a good thing because we we all pay our taxes in order for the government to produce that information, and uh, we shouldn't be charged twice in order to gain access to that information and to gain access to what it is that the government is doing uh, in our name. This all took place in the early 2000s. And in 2004, Jim and James launched their website, www.freegovinfo.org. You can still engage with the site today. We deal much more with the, with the long tail of, of information usage, whereas a lot of these government agencies um, look, at, uh, look at usage as a, 
more of a due diligence kind of thing. Government information usage from the publisher standpoint is much different from government information usage from uh, from a, a public user or a librarian standpoint. And our interest was in making sure that libraries continue to participate in making that information available to their communities. And we were particularly worried that the government was superseding libraries in that activity. And we were worried that the government would actually perhaps inadvertently endanger the long-term preservation of the information and the accessibility and usability of the information. And so we wanted to free that information from the government by bringing it out of the government, storing it in libraries and making libraries who were more directly responsible to individual communities, responsible for the information and access to it, discoverability and so forth. When GPO first started charging for its original service, what libraries did since they had free access to it was write software that sucked the information out of the government and made it uh, freely available through their own portals. So we actively uh, did that. We actually freed the information and the government was charging for it and libraries were making it freely available. It was all available on the internet. You had your choice, go to your library and get it for free or go to the government and get it for a fee and libraries really force the government to free their information. Thanks to libraries' communities, the federal government has been able to make this important step in facilitating greater access to federal data. Despite these advances, other challenges exist for born digital data produced by the government, including websites about the government. More specifically, in this next segment of the pod, we're talking about the ephemerality of digital data in the absence of good preservation practices. Just because something gets published on the internet doesn't mean it's going to stay public. Jefferson Bailey at the Internet Archive explains. Yeah, I think it's very easy to think that because something is on the web, it will be there forever. But most studies have shown that websites either don't exist anymore or the text or content on them has changed radically in 100 days. So the average lifespan of a web page is about 100 days. So now that everything is published on the web, including important information about democracy and law and, you know, citizens' rights and all these things, um, it's very important to archive it because it is indeed quite ephemeral. If digital data is so ephemeral, what kinds of stewardship techniques are needed to ensure its preservation and continued accessibility into the future? And what does this mean for government data and websites? Uh, the Library of Congress also collects campaign websites. And after the election is over, the the content disappears rather quickly if the, the they don't want to pay for their the hosting of their website anymore. And we're seeing that with government web content as well. As soon as the administration changes or there are massive shifts in policy, websites change and and information is altered. So we have to document that over time. And that's just what we do as libraries. Remember, Data Refuge's urgent archiving project was a direct response to the newly elected administration's policy towards climate change. That is a lack of policy altogether fueled by climate denial. We were inspired by initiatives like the end-of-term presidential harvest, initiated in 2007 and hosted by the California Digital Library and the Internet Archive, 
organized by a number of partner institutions, the end-of-term harvest goals were to collect federal government domains in the final months of the Bush administration and then archive them during the transition into Obama's first term. Jim A. Jacobs tells us why this was such an important initiative. I, I, I think it's really important to realize that there's only one government agency that has as its explicit legal mission to preserve information for the long term, that's the National Archives. And the National Archives doesn't have the budget to make available all the stuff that they've got. They don't have the budget to get everything that they should get. <laughs> and other agencies are producing so much that the National Archives can't even get the things that it is legally responsible for. So how does the end-of-term harvest project and web archiving more broadly actually work? Web archiving is the process of uh, making copies of things on the web for archival purposes and making sure that that copy is complete and it can be looked at in perpetuity exactly as it originally existed. So uh, sometimes they're called snapshots or crawls. So a crawler sort of goes to the the website, it goes through all the pages, makes copies of them, downloads it, puts it in an archive, uh, and then the archive can play them back in a controlled environment so that you know that they look like they did on the day that it was originally archived. It's not like thinking of just a screenshot or one static image of a website. It's documenting those changes over time and ensuring that you're recording the change. But of course, this process isn't as simple as it sounds. There are many sites that are not easily recognizable by their uh, web address, their URL, so lots of things are not on the quote-unquote .gov domain. There's also, of course, social media, so uh, lots of agencies as well as administrators within those agencies have official social media accounts for disseminating news and information and all that other stuff. Uh, Twitter, they all have YouTube channels. You know, none of those are automatically identifiable as being government. The more recent web is very interactive, and a lot of that interactivity depends on someone clicking or scrolling or some behavior that a user does. Since web archiving happens at a large scale, it's largely automated. Um, there are some manual approaches, but obviously those uh, can't capture the extent of the web that we want to preserve. So a lot of the dynamic nature of current websites can make some aspects of them hard to capture. The End of Term Harvest Project chooses to crawl certain websites, URLs, and government data sets that have been recommended by different people across the globe through a nomination tool. But even with so much public interest, as Jefferson Bailey says, The web is too big for any one institution to archive all of it. So in this final segment, we're talking about what it is that we need to ensure that data doesn't die prematurely, that its life cycle continues. A number of organizations, Internet Archive, Library of Congress, University of North Texas, California Digital Library, I believe, and Government Publishing Office at the time, get together and said, well, let's do this. Let's do this collaboratively. Um, it was a big project, and we wanted to engage the community. So we put a call out to get nominations from the public to try to preserve as much as we could. The answer is collaboration. Collaborative networks are crucial to ensure the life cycle of data. 
Yeah. Remember from late 2016 to 2017, End of Term Harvest managed to archive 100,000 web pages with over 11,400 nominations. In collaboration with Data Refuge and the many data rescue events co-organized with the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative and many other partners. I think if we can create a government information ecosystem in which the publishers and the users and the preservers of that information all work together in that ecosystem, I think that would go a long way towards preserving electronic government information for the long term. We at Data Refuge had our own nomination tool that was a Qualtrics survey asking what kinds of environmental and climate data our respondents cared about. That survey received about 900 responses with 251 unique URL nominations. Our project ended up documenting and archiving 18.9 terabytes of data, most of which can now be found in the archive datarefuge.org. It's no longer just action of collecting information. The end of term project and the, the data rescue, all the data rescue projects were amazing for showing that there was such a public interest and a public drive to, to do that. I was really heartened over the last you know two years of that work. But action is also needed in terms of policy. That's why, a few years ago, a group of librarians collaborated to found PEGI, or the Preservation of Electronic Government Information Group. James Jacobs tells us more. We brought together people from across the spectrum, from librarians, archivists, uh, academics, scientists, journalists, and others who had an interest, not necessarily an expertise, but an interest in seeing that electronic government information got preserved. And we've, we've held some meetings and a couple of national forums to bring all these people together and sort of brainstorm on what kinds of things need to be done in the future because the information has changed in, in both what's produced and how it's used. So action is really needed. Because there's strength in partnerships, we at Data Refuge have partnered with different local communities in Los Angeles, Houston, Oregon, and more to surface local stories about environmental and climate data and the stories we need to make that data lively. And as in coming episodes of Data Remediations, you'll get to meet each of them and learn more about their stories. Hey, it's student intern Grace Burrows here. That's it for this episode, but stay tuned for the next one. We'll continue to explore issues around data's life cycle, but with a special focus on issues around open data and open science, as well as the stakes of open access for our environmental futures. Thank you.